That means that some of you um, probably don't realize that we spent many, 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 many Sundays here at Weavertown, and it certainly is good to be back. I wonder what went through your mind when you heard that the theme of Bible school this week was on missions. It would be interesting for me to know uh, what that word, missions, brings to your mind. Now, I'm not exactly sure why I was uh, asked to speak from the book of Acts, uh, although obviously the book of Acts is chock full of, of mission work and the work of the Holy Spirit through people. We're studying it in Sunday school, as are you. So, uh, this morning you talked about um, Acts chapter 9, I believe. I think we're on, on the, the same schedule in the conversion of Paul. So, a lot of this is fresh in our minds, and for that reason, I'm not going to be turning to a lot of the references in the book of Acts. You, you know them well, um, and I'm probably going to be doing that quite a bit uh, with the Scriptures, referring to them. Uh, I'll have some of them up on the screen here, and if you want to check them out later, you can jot them down, but I'm going to assume that you people are very, very familiar with the book of Acts. You know the stories, you know what happened, so we're not going to um, go into a lot of detail with those. I don't have any experience in foreign missions. I don't have any experience in short-term mission trips. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of experience in missions if your view of missions is to go somewhere else and teach the Word. And Possibly there's many more of you that could say the same. But when we read the book of Acts and when you read the New Testament period, you understand that the New Testament is about the growth of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole New Testament is about. And as we read the New Testament and as we study the New Testament, that should uh, come to the forefront of our understandings about why Jesus came, what he did when he was here and what he expects from his followers when he ascended. And that's going to be sort of our focus this evening. Uh, In the second session, I believe, then we're going to get a little more specialized and hear uh, people who have a lot more experience in the classic um, mission-type experiences that we think of sometimes right off the bat. I have a burden for our young families, particularly our young fathers. And the older I get, I think the more pronounced this burden becomes. I believe that uh, in our world today, more is expected of us, and particularly our young parents, than ever before in the history of the world. And when I say our, I'm speaking specifically about our culture, our Um, conservative Christian Anabaptist culture. So our men are still the sole breadwinners for the most part in our families. But the expectations are rising. To make a living today means something completely different than it did for our grandfathers. 
and possibly even for our fathers. While a man today, of course, makes more money than previous generations, his money doesn't go nearly as far, and far more is expected of him. Now, this is also true for young mothers, for women, for youth, and for um, probably even people my age. So our properties are bigger. They cost a lot more. They're more luxurious. They're better manicured and landscaped than ever before. Our vehicles are more numerous and can do a lot more things than they could before. Our businesses are bigger and farther reaching, requiring far more capital uh, to operate and they face more competition than ever. Debt is nearly unavoidable, and so on and so forth. At home, there are similar raised expectations. There has been a lot of teaching about marriage and family life in the past couple of decades, and I think it was necessary and good, is still necessary and right. But a man faces increasing expectations at home as well. While previous generations had very defined roles and the roles of husband and wife were very separated, those roles have, have begun to blend. And so now a husband helps with um, the dishes and the diapers and he um, helps more with the children and he's far more involved in their education than he was in the past. And these things all take time and energy. Now a husband has to pursue his wife on a daily basis, whatever that means, as well as pay attention individually to his children and meet their individual needs, and it, it, it goes on and on and on. School costs more and takes more time and has more activities, and the list goes on and on. So the economic demands on our heads of households has greatly increased. The demands on a man's time from family and church have increased in gigantic measures. And I speak as a, uh, I'm not a young father anymore, but I speak as a father who's, who's felt this pressure. So for the most part, I think we've navigated this increased pressure fairly well because I, I look around this congregation and the congregation at Trauger and, and I see families that work, that are functional. Not just that work and are functional, but, but that, that thrive. Families where marriages are strong and parents have healthy, positive uh, relationships with their children. Children that are being raised in a godly environment. Parents who really love their children. Sacrifice for them every day. I believe that at least in, in our sphere, uh, here at Weavertown and so on, um, our churches are characterized by solid, functional, godly families. We've come a long way from some of the neglects and the excesses of the previous generation. And for that, I think our young families need to be commended. I think we're all aware of the explosion of resources dedicated to and attention given to the strengths of marriage and families. A lot of it has been written, a lot of has been taught, a lot has been talked about. 
And I think for the most part, we've caught those messages and we've applied them. And we are in a, in a much better place than we were in past generations. So this week, the focus uh, of our Winter Bible School is missions. Our focus is going to be the book of Acts. We're going to, of course, deviate to other scriptures and other places as well. Uh, but we're going to be looking at the growth of the church immediately after its birth. And I think probably we could call the birth of the church the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I guess we could probably quibble about that, but we're not going to. But I'd like for us to think about how often the family is mentioned in the book of Acts. Now, there, there are references to brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, and so on. But there is basically no teaching about the family in the book of Acts. How much is the family mentioned in the New Testament? Again, there's some teaching, particular, particularly Ephesians 5 on marriage and so on. Well, what is the New Testament about? And I mentioned this in my opening comments. The New Testament is about the church of Jesus Christ and its birth and growth and what God expects or Jesus expects his church, his bride to be doing here on the earth in the intervening years before he returns. That's what the New Testament is about. Are we aware? I know we are aware. I'm, I'm not going to cover much new material this week that you haven't heard before. I think we're aware that our greatest strength becomes our greatest weakness when it's taken to extremes. Determination in its extreme is stubbornness. And, and all of our weaknesses, personality weaknesses, are really our strengths taken too far, in excess. And I think that could be true of us as congregations, as, of us as cultures, of us as groups of people. And I think we need to be careful that our diligent attention and commitment to our families does not hinder the building of the kingdom and therefore undermine the growth of the church. Now, I'm not saying that because I think that's happening But I don't think any of us ever wants that to happen either. <clears throat> there is such a thing as family idolatry. And I'm going to mention this a couple of times this week. <clears throat> and I think it's something that we need to be careful of. The accomplishment of a beautiful, healthy marriage and well-adjusted, well-trained children is not an end in itself. If we do not use that, for the growth of the church, then I'm afraid our efforts have been misplaced. The raising our families, the raising of our families should be considered a means to the far more noble end, and that is the growth of the church. So we've seen great growth in the last decade or two, of, or two in our marriages and families, and I'm going to suggest that Maybe it's time for us. Maybe it's time for us now 
to use those relationships, thank you, Sullivan, to use those relationships to enhance our efforts to build the church. I'd like to define missions quickly um, as simply the growth of the church. And maybe in your first thought about missions when you heard what Bible school was about, you were thinking about foreign missions or even uh, more local missions. But let's, let's think more, um, I don't like to use the term generically, but generically for the time being, and let's just simply think about the building of the church, the growth of the church. And that really is what the book of Acts is about. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. <clears throat> I'm going to take the time to read this whole chapter because it sort of sets up how I want to begin this week. And I invite you to stand as we read this chapter. Uh, as you're standing and finding Isaiah 54, I'd like for, to, to uh, just point out to you the context. Isaiah 53, I'm sure almost all of you are uh, aware or you're familiar with the chapter. It, it prophesies in great detail uh, the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, in Isaiah 54, my uh, Bible says the Messiah's promise of Israel's restoration. And then chapter 55, the Messiah's invitation to the world. <clears throat> In Isaiah 55, um, there's uh, very familiar verses there as well. Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and so on. We've, we've heard those <clears throat> verses. So Isaiah 54, starting at verse 1. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded. For thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the, the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires. And I will make thy windows of agates and thy gates of carbuncles and thy board, all thy borders of pleasant stones. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established, for thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire. 
and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the water to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know if you remember, in July of 1997, Ralph Miller preached a message here at Weavertown entitled, Lengthen Thy Cords and Strengthen Thy Stakes. Does anybody besides me remember that? Now look at that. Now Ralph is my brother-in-law, <clears throat> and they visit us uh, occasionally in Westmoreland County. We meet there every summer to celebrate uh, my dad-in-law's birthday. So I mentioned to him some time ago about this message, and he was surprised that I remembered it. And it looks like a number of others of you, um, you were, uh, there's not a lot of sermons I remember, but that one I did. But he was surprised, and I asked him if he would uh, dust it off and share it at Trogger, which he did a couple of months ago. And he preached the message again at Trogger, which I thought was... Uh, just tremendously um, applicable to us. And of course, his text was this chapter, Isaiah 54. Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. This passage is a messianic prophecy of Israel's restoration. But it's also, and, and the context here between chapters 53 and chapters 55, with 55 being an invitation to the rest of the world to come as well, it's obviously also, it strongly suggests a prophecy of the church and its victory. So I asked Ralph if I could borrow this idea to start our week. And if he, of course, um, assured me that I can use any piece of the word of God that I would like but I wanted to at least give proper credit. Uh, the idea uh, was his. So verse 2 in this um, chapter is a charge for us to expand, to grow, to flourish, to spread out, to prosper, to succeed. That's what those words mean, to prosper on the right hand on, and on the left, everywhere, not just in one area, but in every area. Verse 3, to break forth, to expand on the right and on the left, as I referred to. Verse 4, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Fear not. For thou shalt not be ashamed, neither shalt thou be confounded or disgraced. Speaking to the nation of Israel, and I think by extension to us, as the church of God. And then this verse 5, which I think is a clear reference to the church, for thy maker is thy husband. And we understand that, of course, the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. The Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the holy one of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Is there any reason with resources like that that the church should not grow and expand. And we can talk all we want about the degradation of morals in the United States and the lousy political climate. We can go on and on and on. 
But listen, people, we're still not anywhere close to the political situation of the book of Acts. If we can't function under the government we've got now, when, if and when we ever get to Nero, we're in big trouble. We understand that? So we have the resources that we need. Thy maker is thy husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth. So I'd like for us to think about the two parts of this, I'm sorry, of this illustration. Isaiah 54 refers to a dwelling or a tent. And it refers to two parts of this tent, the cords and the stakes. Now, in order for this dwelling or this tent, this habitation, I think is the term that the King James uses, to be enlarged, the cords are going to need to get longer. Their reach is going to expand. The poles are going to get higher. So the distances are going to be greater. So we need longer cords because the dwelling needs to expand and go up, but the stakes also need strengthened to protect against inevitable uh, winds. The storm will come, and the gale will bring destruction and ruin if things are not battened down properly. So the stakes need to be driven deeper to give additional stability and staying power. Now, both of these things are necessary, but they're not accomplished by one person. They're not accomplished by two or three people. They're accomplished by all of us. They're the responsibility of every member of the church. So, while some are lengthening the cords and broadening the reach of the dwelling, and that, of course, has the idea of bringing more people in, there's others that are going to be working on the security and safety of the structure. Important things need to be in important places. Valuable things need to be valued. Doctrines need to be taught. Disciplines need to be maintained. There has to be uh, structure and safeguards. Areas of weakness need to be noticed and something done about them. It's useless for God's people to work and toil and bring people into a tent that's about to collapse. And it's also futile for people to be making this structure strong and secure if there's no growth and nobody in it. And sometimes in the church, these two things, the lengthening of the cords and the strengthening of the stakes, kind of butt heads. We know this. You don't need me to tell you that. So a small fortress-like static structure which doesn't change or grow or show any life is not an apostolic New Testament church. But a large, spreading, sprawling, sprawling structure that's in danger of collapse is a menace 
to anybody that we try to bring in. Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. The New Testament uses a word that I know you're all familiar with that we want to think about here as we form in our minds, uh, as we build on our definition of missions, uh, the growth of the church. And it's this word, edify. Now, we're going to concentrate on this a little bit. And we're going to be talking about this uh, for the first couple of evenings. And the word edify in the Greek is very simple. It means to simply, uh, to build, to build up. Uh, Its root is edifice, which is the building. Um, Jesus' disciples used that term when they um, pointed out the tremendous building of the, the temple. And then Jesus kind of, I think, probably shrugged his shoulders and says, well, all these things are going to be thrown down. It's also used as the act of one who promotes another's growth in Christian wisdom, piety, happiness, holiness. Edification is what we do to each other, for each other, that causes this building, this structure, the church, to be built, to grow. Who in Scripture is called to edify? Somebody answer that quick. All of us. Every single one of us are called to edify. Building the church of Jesus Christ is the essence of all missions. And that's why the Great Commission starts in Jerusalem and ends in the uttermost parts of the earth and everywhere in between. It's something that happens everywhere we go, everywhere that we happen to be. To be a builder of the church is not optional. It's the responsibility of all members of Christ's body, every member of this particular body and every member of the global church of Jesus Christ. It is our responsibility to build the kingdom. It's not something that maybe we should do. It is our responsibility. And we're going to try to make that abundantly clear as we think about um, this week. Now, most of the uses of this word edify are in the chapters of the Bible that refer to the spiritual gifts. The the word edify, edification, edifying, and so on are not used real often in the New Testament, I think maybe 12 times. And I think eight or nine of those times it is in relation to the spiritual gifts. So as I prepared for this week, and I knew I wanted to talk about building the church, and I knew I wanted to talk about this edifying word, and I decided that I didn't have any choice except to talk about the spiritual gifts. Now, there's no teaching in the book of Acts on the spiritual gifts. Uh, And I'm supposed to teach out of the book of Acts. So I'm going to, still going to, and I'm still going to talk about the spiritual gifts. And I know that you people have heard about the spiritual gifts, but I've been kind of surprised, especially as I talked to some of our young people at Trogger, how little they knew about the spiritual gifts. 
And so we have this spiritual gifts idea floating around out there and we, we know about it and we know that we're supposed to have spiritual gifts and we know that we all have different gifts and sometimes we get in each other's hair because of our gifts and we shouldn't do that and so on. But we don't really, I don't think, understand maybe what this is about. So uh, pastors at Weavertown, I'm, I, I have to race through this really quick. So I'm suggesting maybe a sermon series on the spiritual gifts. If, of course, maybe you just finished one last week sometime. I haven't been here in a little while. Uh, so excuse me if you have. As I page through the book of Acts, I see people everywhere in these chapters using their spiritual gifts. Now, the, the book of Acts is about the growth of the church, but the book of Acts is also about the tremendous manifestations of the Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's in every page. It's in every chapter. It's almost in every verse. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit gives to the believers to do the work of Jesus Christ here on the earth, which is to build His church. And it's all through the book. There is not necessarily any teaching in the book of Acts on the spiritual gifts, but they are displayed everywhere. And we're going to get to that here in just a little bit. So we're going to take the first two evenings of this week to talk about uh, the spiritual gifts. But actually, um, the spiritual gifts are kind of going to kind of be woven through the whole week. Now, you've discussed this in Sunday school, but I want to mention it at least. We, we know about the change in these apostles slash disciples. And one of the things that I've tried to be very careful to point out as we were teaching the first couple books of Acts at Trauger was that we have to understand and remember that these first couple chapters of Acts happened in Jerusalem, the very place that Jesus was taken through the streets carrying his own cross as he went to his death. And we sometimes, there's a little bit of a disconnect between the end of John and the beginning of Acts. What happened here in the first couple of books of Acts Jesus' death and resurrection was just a couple weeks ago. This was fresh. And these disciples went from Peter cursing and swearing and declaring that he had no idea who Jesus was to a couple weeks later they couldn't shut him up and he would not scare. What was the difference? It was the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost changed everything for them. Now, obviously, seeing Jesus and conversing with him various times between Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost made a great difference too. But we understand that the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that was what Jesus was talking about when he talked to them about the comfort of coming. And Jesus knew how it was going to change them. And it sure enough did. The difference was the presence of the Spirit and the gifts that He gave them. So throughout the book of Acts, we see the apostles using the leadership and speaking gifts, the miracles and healing, those are spiritual gifts by the way, and, and that's what the apostles were doing. Now I believe... And we don't have time to discuss this in detail, but I do believe that the apostles, the 12 apostles, had special gifting. 
as Jesus handpicked men. And I do believe that the Apostle Paul probably took Judas's place, not Matthias. But you, pro- you talked about that in Sunday school. I don't want to get into all that. It's, it's not for no reason that the 12 foundations in the New Jerusalem bear the names of the 12 apostles. So I believe that the 12 apostles were given special gifting uh, by the Holy Spirit for this time and place. However, there's other people in the book of Acts. You've heard of a man by the name of Barnabas. Does anyone want to venture what spiritual gift he had? Encouragement, mercy, what else? Exhortation. Uh, maybe, but there's another one. What did Barnabas do at the end of chapter 4? Anybody remember? He had a piece of land, and he what? He sold it. And donated the whole thing to the church. It's very possible that Barnabas had the gift of giving. What gifts did Stephen have? He was a man full of... Acts tells you. He was full of the Holy Spirit, but he was also full of faith, it says. And I think probably, and and we took three Sundays to to discuss Acts chapter 7. And we dissected that sermon that he preached to the the council. The man also had the gift of prophecy. He laid it out, did he not? He called a spade a spade. I think he probably had the gift of prophecy and, and possibly also the gift of wisdom and knowledge. Because he took their history and it all made sense to Stephen. And it talks about the Grecians that they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. When, he, when you got into a discussion with Stephen about Jesus Christ and who he was, you, you, you were in for a time of it if you were not on the same side. Because this man had it figured out. The bishop of the church in uh, Jerusalem In Acts chapter 15, they have a big problem. And I'll bet some of you church leaders, you read read that. And it talks about the disputing that they had. And we read over those verses and it takes us about 25 seconds to read them. I'll bet they sat for a long time. And I'll bet some of them stood for a while. And I'll... (laughs) Anyway. But finally, at the end of all this, James, he says, you know what? This is the way it's going to be. Certainly a leadership gift, possibly a pastor gift, a gift of wisdom. There was a man, Philip. We talked about him for two chapters. Now, I, I think, I think you probably talked about this in Sunday school, but I don't think this was the apostle, Philip. I think this was the deacon, Philip. Did you catch that? Did you talk about that? And so this is not necessarily one of these uh, special, specially gifted ones, and that's kind of what I'm highlighting here. What gift did he have? Gift or gifts? Did Philip have? Evangelism, Evangelism without a question. Uh, he, he, he goes to Samaria because of the persecution that came because of Stephen's death. And there's just this enormous revival in Samaria. 
So much so that Peter and John have to go down and see what's going on. Possibly the gift of teaching. Uh, possibly the gift of compassion. And we talked about this particularly when he, when he met the Ethiopian uh, treasurer. That this Ethiopian treasurer was in a bind. He had to be a God-fearer, a believer in God. That's why he went to Jerusalem to worship. What else would have brought him to Jerusalem to worship? But he didn't understand the whole thing about Jesus' death. And he's reading Isaiah 53 and he doesn't even know who it's talking about. And he has this debt and this weight of sin and he doesn't know what to do with it. Can you imagine the frustration of that? So he's been in Jerusalem doing who knows what and he has not made a connection with God. And he knows he has something wrong with him and he doesn't, he doesn't know what to do. <clears throat> Philip heard him reading in Isaiah chapter 53 and I think figured out what was going on. And they, they didn't even stop to chit-chat. They didn't even say, hi, how you doing? I mean, I'm reading, who's the prophet talking? They got right to it. And Philip started from that verse and preached to the man Jesus. And that was all it took. In today's Sunday school lesson, you talked about a man named Ananias. He is not mentioned before or after Acts 9. What spiritual gift do you think he had? I think he had to have the spiritual gift of faith. I want you to go down to this whatever street, to whoever's house, I can't remember the details there. Saul of Tarsus is there and he's praying and Ananias says Lord we know about this man and with a reassurance from the Holy Spirit Ananias gets up and does what he's told it makes no sense it is dangerous but with the gift of faith Ananias goes in he lays his hands on, who does it say? He lays his hands on Brother Saul. You caught that, didn't you? Yeah. Aquila and Priscilla, what spiritual gift did they have? Possibly. Possibly. Something else? Mentoring. Mentoring. That's a spiritual gift? Well, you missed one, I think. I, actually, I think this was a very gifted couple. I think they also had the gift of hospitality. Oh, I'm sorry. I went too far there. Possibly the gift of exhortation. And, and we're, we're just... Um, kind of throwing these out. I'm sure there's others could fit as well. But it was, uh, I think Paul lived with them for about a year and a half. And then um, it was also they, they who sort of corrected Apollos. Now we're, we're going to get to that in our Sunday school later on. 
but there's this, this fiery new preacher, and he's, he's, not quite, he's not quite right. And he's preaching the, the baptism of John. And so they come alongside him, and mentoring is um, part of the gift of exhortation. Well, quickly, I, uh, you, you got a sneak peek here at Dorcas. She obviously had the gift of service and compassion. And then uh, Peter, in dealing with Simon in chapter 8, we discussed this in our Sunday school lesson as well, the gift of discernment and prophecy. And Peter looked Simon in the eye and said, gall, bitterness, and um, what was it? Something of iniquity, a bond of iniquity. And he, he discerned what was going on in uh, Simon's life and set it straight. So when the Holy Spirit fell on new believers in the book of Acts, what were the signs of the Spirit's presence? Two things. What two things did they do when the Holy Spirit came on them? I'm pretty sure you know this. They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Acts 19 and a couple other places. Those are spiritual gifts. So why those two? Why tongues and prophecy? Why doesn't that happen to us today? Well, the Holy Spirit manifests itself in times and places of need. Now, I think we should point out, before we start making excuses for ourselves here in the 21st century, that in Acts chapter 4, in that prayer meeting, and we discussed that, you discussed it too, in that prayer meeting where when they were done, the place shook, they prayed specifically that the Spirit would manifest itself in miracles and signs by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit did. And maybe, just maybe, we're missing something there. Well, let's define tongues and prophecy. The tongue, or tongues, is defined as, of course, the tongue, a member of the body and organ of speech, but it's also used here as the language or dialect used by particular people distinct from that of other nations. In other words, a foreign tongue. And there is no indication in the book of Acts at all that tongues were anything else. And we know that Peter, in the first sermon that was preached in Acts, there was all kinds of people that understood him, even though he was speaking in the Hebrew language. And apparently, these new believers were speaking in foreign tongues. And I think the reason for that is obvious. Because there was all kinds of people in Jerusalem who needed to hear the word. And so they heard them speak in their own language. Let's not make the gift of tongues into something that's not. To prophesy, to be a prophet, to speak forth by divine inspirations, or to predict. And that's what sometimes we get hung up with, with the gift of prophecy. We, we hone in on that predict business. Has the idea of foretelling future events pertaining especially to the kingdom of God. To utter forth, to declare a thing which can only be known by divine revelation. So there is an aspect of the gift of prophecy that has to do with revelation. 
to break forth under sudden impulse in lofty discourse or praise of the divine counsels, to teach, to refute, to reprove, to admonish, comfort others. Gift of prophecy is one that Paul addresses to the first Corinthians, to the Corinthian church in first Corinthians. And these two gifts were, were gifts that he sort of compared and almost pitted against each other because the, this gift of tongues was being abused and the gift of prophecy was being neglected. And Saul had to set that, uh, I'm sorry, Paul had to set that straight um, for the Corinthian church. So as I wrap up here this evening, I want to ask the question, what is a spiritual gift? And I'd like for us to think about this uh, overnight, but I'm just going to give you a quick definition. It's a special attribute given by the Holy Spirit to every member of the body of Christ according to God's grace to be used within the context of the body of Christ. It's a special attribute given by the Holy Spirit to every member of the body of Christ according to God's grace for use within the context of the body. So tomorrow evening, we're going to discuss biblical instructions about spiritual gifts. I'm going to concentrate on 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So we're going to deviate a little bit from the book of Acts, although we're going to be referring to it throughout. So uh, if you'd like to do some advanced reading or maybe in your personal devotions tomorrow morning, um, I'd encourage you to do a quick read-through of uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. Thank you.